are here for some MLOps talk going from BI to AI, or as you like to put it, going from barely doing BI to doing AI and what kind of data foundations can we build so that that switch is seamless. And so I think the way that I usually start things off is just asking, how did you get into tech? And then what brought you on the journey to get into data? Uh, tech's an interesting one. I mean, I grew up around tech in the 80s. Um, I mean, ever since I was a kid, I think I had computers. So and like to hack around on those a lot. Then in the 90s, um, you know, I had my first Internet connection in 92, I think something like that. So, I mean, I was pretty early on in the internet. I mean, that was before even the web browser. So I beta tested uh, Mosaic, I think when I was a teenager, a junior in high school, it was 1994 or something. Um, and since then, you know, and I had, I started making websites back in the late nineties and then, um, you know, kind of switched gears, got my math degree and went into, um, I was about to become an actuary actually. And then I decided to uh, choose uh, business analytics instead. So that um, I think that that math foundation was interesting. It set me up to do um, a lot of, uh, I guess, what is now called data science. So forecasting optimization, um, a lot of stuff that uh, people are still doing now because it's, it's important, um, you know, data warehousing. And then I think around 20, 2009 or 2010, I realized like, Cloud computing started offering the ability to do machine learning for real, uh, and so that was exciting. So I um, sort of—I uh, always had an interest in ML, but then I dove back into it, I suppose, in, in more of an earnest fashion. And in 2012, I joined a um, startup that was doing uh, auto ML on kind of tabular data. Oh, I think it was probably one of the first auto ML. Um, yeah, back in the around. day. Yeah. So I, you know, and, and I think that's where my interest in ML ops and data engineering came into play because, you know, we had a team of, you know, math PhDs working on, um, you know, designing ML, auto ML algorithms, which at that point was ensemble learning. So this is even before uh, deep learning, right? Wow. So uh, you, it was using more, I guess, what you call classical methods. But even then I realized, you know, these, we didn't even call them data scientists back then, but I guess that's what they are, but they're spending all their time um, feature engineering, and then basically having to figure out how to uh, you know, host models that we build and stuff. And so that's, I think, where I realized that the the math, and I'd say the algorithms around machine learning, and I, I say this in a general sense, uh, is, I would say, fairly, it's easier than all the surrounding operations that go into um, machine learning. So, hmm. uh you know, the data, getting the data, ingesting it before you make a model and then obviously everything that comes after uh, model creation, I think we're um, actually significantly harder problems to solve than the um, algorithm piece. And we can touch on that in a bit. And so, you know, that, and I guess from there, decided to spend a lot of time dedicated to data engineering. And uh, yeah, it's been an interesting ride. I mean, when I first got into data engineering, I think it was around the time data science was becoming like, you know, you're reaching peak data science. Um, sexiest job in the yeah, sexiest job, right? And everyone's like, "Oh, why? Why would you want to not do uh, data science?" I'm like, "Well, I just think there's for me, there's more interesting problems to solve. I think the algorithms piece. There's enough bright minds working on that, but I don't think that that's um, where I need to spend my time." Mm -hmm. But so. yeah, that's fascinating. That 
And you touch on something that is one thing that I've been wrapping my head around more and more. And the idea of ML ops being so big, it's not just the machine learning engineers problem. It's not just the data engineers problem. You potentially have to bring it back to DevOps and even sometimes an SRE and it's, and the data scientists, right? Like the data scientists could be included in that too. So that whole picture, I mean, it's, it's so big and the problems that you encounter on that, you have to be very versatile. And the idea of a unicorn, one person taking that whole, taking the ball from like the, their own, I was going to use a football metaphor, but whatever, taking it to the goal line is, is very, very difficult. So you got into auto ML, then you decided to branch out and do your own thing or how did, how did that happen? Yeah, I mean, I, I worked as a software engineer, data engineer at a variety of companies, I think in, kind of in between um, and, you know, built data teams, uh, various companies. And actually, I joined another AutoML startup, I think it was 2017. And it had a going pretty hard on the AutoML, huh? <laughs> you yeah, thought. More, yeah, just, well, it was like the people that some of the people that I was working with on uh, the past AutoML project had joined another company doing AutoML. And so, you know, um, it's a close-knit circle, especially in Utah. There's probably like, I can count on my hand how many auto ML experts mm-hmm. there probably are here. And so if you know each other, then, you know, you kind of run that circle. And yeah, so I, I, I took over, um, uh, you know, one of my friends, he was leaving actually to start a, uh, another company with Ben Taylor, Zeph. Um, and so that, uh, um, so kind of took over for that. And then I realized like, I, I would rather just having a day job spawn um, I'm kind of feral in that sense too, where I like to, uh, go out and, uh, I guess, create new ventures. So I saw this as a good opportunity to, uh, start doing, you know, start a data engineering, data architecture, consulting practice. Um, the observations that I had were basically, especially at the startup I was at, they're trying to do auto and, uh, BI data. So data warehouse data. And what I realized with that is, um, the, again, the algorithm piece was the easiest part. Like you just get the data and throw it at an algo and gives you an answer and on you go. But the hard part was just figuring out even how to frame a machine learning question, especially on BI data, which I'll get into in a bit. Cause I think that's its own separate, um, uh, you know, animal in some ways. Um, but, mm. you know, I just realized over and over all the clients that we were dealing with, they all had kind of the same problems I've been seeing you know, many years prior and it hadn't been solved really. And so I figured my attention was better to spend um, building a business around that. So went out on my own for a year, then met my business partner, Matt, and we formed Ternary Data. He's had a very similar path, sort of. He was a um, uh, academic math professor for a long time and decided to join the dark side and join industry and, uh, and realized too that, you know, teams of data scientists, basically at the company he was hired at, you know, they're just having built all the infrastructure, you know, around machine learning and analytics and whatnot. So he's like, well, why don't I just spend my time doing that? So it's definitely a serendipitous meeting because it felt like I was definitely kind of alone um, for a bit. I mean, especially back, you know, in 2017, it was still data science, machine learning um, was the hot thing, right? And like all the attention was focused on uh, building algorithms and then training models. Um, very little attention was focused on anything else, um, at least in the popular press. So. Yeah, no, nobody was talking about the infrastructure side or how you're going to serve these models or how you're going to make some money out of them. It was more 
this uh, delusion. And so let's talk about the idea that you said, like, why do you feel people aren't really doing BI? And then what is the, the step, like, let alone doing ML? So what, what is it with BI and then making that jump to ML? I think it really, I mean, there's, there's a couple of threads to this. Um, one is it's partly organizational. And I think this is one of the things I've noticed that trumps almost anything else is if you don't have a data-driven culture, it's incredibly difficult to do analytics, right? Because, uh, I mean, look around. If you, go to, if you go to a lot of companies that I would say are kind of more gut-driven or, or maybe barely data-driven, um, the types of reports that they use or... Um, uh, you know, there might be competing reports within a company, right? So nobody can agree on definitions of, of data, like what is a customer? I see this so often, actually. Um, and then that sort of, you know, trickles down into, um, you know, sort of an inability to come up with consistent reporting. Uh, so each department may have its own reports. And so what you, what you tend to find is there's um, inconsistencies, not just in the data, but in how people use data. And so, you know, in my opinion, at least when you're talking about tabular data, um, especially business data, like stuff that's in databases, data warehouses, um, ERP systems, CRM systems, et cetera, like if that data isn't in good shape um, and if people can't agree on um, how to best to use that data to make decisions, uh, for one, business intelligence, BI, is um, a long shot. And we see this uh, quite often. And then we also see these companies trying to shoehorn machine learning on top of um, basically it's a sort of a flimsy foundation uh, and then they you know invest a lot of resources in ml and like well i'm not really seeing any value out of this i mean this is it would say a pretty common theme um and so that's super interesting that you talk about the organizational part of it and it's something that has come up so much here when we talk to people and when we talk about just the idea of ml ops and how devops has an organizational piece and then ml ops should theoretically also have an organizational piece, but the problem with machine learning and when you're trying to get something into play is a lot of the time organizational. And you bring up the point of not having the right data or not being able to agree on what data is what. And there is also the idea of just like the difficulty of a monolithic stack and how you can try and shoehorn some kind of new Kubernetes-esque thing into that and be like, oh, now we have to go and learn Kubernetes or now we should figure this problem out. And so the, the organizational piece is key. How have you seen like machine learning fall flat with that? Like you're, you're talking about trying to shoehorn machine learning on top of a already like weak foundation of BI. What, how have you seen that fall flat? Um, I mean, it's basically just sort of an oil and water mixture at the end of the day, right? So if you, if you don't have data-driven practices in your business, it's incredibly difficult to shoehorn in anything sophisticated. I mean, if you, let's put it this way. If you're, if you're barely um, leveraging Excel to make good decisions, in your business, um, I mean, your business might be more successful because you're you're lucky, or you're fortunate. Like, um, but it, it's it's I think it's just really difficult because like, one, you don't even it's difficult to understand not only the data but questions to ask about the data, um, problems you're trying to solve, right? Um, I mean, 
in a lot of cases, it's, you know, that what we also find is there's, and I'm seeing maybe there's sort of a change recently about this, but I would say from like 2016 to 2019, maybe there was a big emphasis with CTOs, CIOs, and CEOs that we had to do machine learning. We had to do data science because if we weren't, um, you know, competitors might be doing it, or I just won't have anything interesting to talk about with my other CTO friends when we meet for coffee, <laughs> right? So, um, so it was. We noticed there were a lot of projects that were being started around uh, those sort of motivations, um, and but then when they try and do them, I think they realize that. Um, you know, things, this basic things, and not even talking about organization, but like other, other aspects of data quality, data governance, um, basically all the foundations you kind of need to do even BI successfully weren't there. Um, so they, uh, it was just really difficult to do machine learning at that point. Because if, if you think about what machine learning is, especially in the context of businesses, I mean, it's really just applied stats for the most part. Mm. So um, if you're, uh, you know, if you, if, if you have tabular data and you're trying to do predictions. I mean, specifically on the same data you'd be using in your operational or, or BI systems. And if your BI systems aren't working, for example, then that is a leading indicator that machine learning is probably not going to work. Yeah. So there's one thing that you brought up in one of your videos that I was binging over the last couple of days. And it was the idea of like, when you're trying to do something new, I think it was on the pipelines video that you were talking about. And it, it was this idea, and I think it fits into what you're talking about now on the idea of, do I need to just go out and reinvent my whole stack or can I build on top of what I have? And right. so like what you're talking about, let's, let's imagine that we are doing BI fairly well and now we want to jump to machine learning. Do I need to go out and reinvent the whole stack or can I shoehorn it on? Um, it's a good question. I, I think it depends on where you are with your um, in your data stack. I think it's a lot easier to do this in the cloud, for example, um, especially if you're cloud native. Um, you know, AWS, GCP, and Azure make this like insanely simple. It's almost embarrassingly simple, to be frank. Um, like SageMaker, for example, especially the, the recent announcements with Studio. It's like um, it's a pretty complete package for the most part. And if if you have your data and S3 Redshift Athena, for example, it's like it, I don't know. I mean, then it's a question of you having to solve business problems. So it's the pipelining piece, I would say, if you're in the big three clouds and just want to sort of pick the generic off the shelf solution, it's it seems like that's becoming more of a solved problem, which is pretty cool, so. And but. as far as like, so going beyond pipelining and let's imagine data warehousing and it's uh, it's interesting little bit of a tangent, but I was talking with um, Carl Steinbach from LinkedIn a few last week, I think. And he was one of the things that he mentioned was he, he felt like data warehouses and data, um, data lakes are on a crash course towards each other. Right. Yeah. And they're, they're eating up, they're starting to eat up so much market share that the only place that they can go is into the others. And so I'm just wondering, like, when you're doing BI and you're trying to make that move into ML, do you feel like you need to really start? Like, how can we do that, I guess, is the question. Mm, so there's, there's a couple of threads to this. One is that and the observation is correct, definitely, that 
data warehouses and data lakes are, I would say, becoming one and the same thing. Um, the, I would say in the, the early to uh, mid 2010s, there was a kind of a move to the data lake. Um, but when you look at what that use case was for, it was mainly for at least the ones that I had seen, it was for structured data. Obviously, if you're doing unstructured data, you're going to have to do something besides um, the data warehouse of those snowflakes recent announcement may, may prove that wrong too. They can do unstructured data in there now, but regardless, um, I think snowflakes are a really good example, right? Where they've taken, uh, you know, um, they're just taking off uh, and their sales, I mean, they're, they're selling in all the clouds or beating a lot of the clouds at their own game of the warehousing. And they're also supplying data lakes. They're, they're, um, they're a big threat, I would say, to anybody who's dealing with analytical data stores at this point. If you're a data lake company and you're competing against Snowflake, like it's going to be tough because, uh, the, the, you know, it's, it's the story that's told behind data lakes and, uh, you know, the modern cloud of data warehouse, right? And it's hmm. it's not so much that one's better than the other, I would say, although I, from a technical perspective, depending on what you need, maybe you can you know, we could go into nuance and make arguments about, you know, op option A or B or mm -hmm. Z or whatever. But um, for the most part, yeah, I mean, I think what we're seeing is a kind of a reversal, whereas people were going to data lakes back in the day, now they're going back into uh, data warehouses, cloud data warehouses. It is not like some something like Vertica or yeah. something. But uh, that yeah. mimics exactly what Carl was talking about. Mm -hmm. And and they also new new generation stuff like uh, Druid. Um, the shirt I have on is from uh, the group that manages Druid uh, Imply. So it's like you're also seeing kind of these low latency real time data stores. I think also becoming sort of this parallel track. So I think what you're going to see is data warehouses alongside, um, you know, super fast, um, real-time event ingestion engines. Um, and when I say real-time, I'm not talking about micro-batch. I'm talking like actual real-time, reading off Kafka and giving you insights like in like sub-millisecond. So that was one other path that we're seeing. Right yeah, now. and that was one thing that you mentioned in another one of your videos is something that you have to ask people. When you say real-time, what do you mean by mm -hmm. real-time? So for you, what is real-time? Uh, that's a good question. Um, I would say it's anything that, that does not involve um, either a sense of time boundedness or um, batching, right? So a lot of, I, I see some real-time systems claiming to be real-time, um, and but they actually do micro-batching behind the scenes. I would say anything that, that eliminates the need to do micro-batching um, and allows data to flow in from point A to B would, would be real time uh, unencumbered. Hmm. There's, there's sort of the notion of like time boundedness and unboundedness as well. So if you remove the constraint of a time bound and it's just unbounded, then that I think is in a sense real time. But then again, I've also, it, it's kind of confusing, uh, I would say, because when you talk to other people about what real time means, there's, I think, a mixture of opinions. We had one person actually say that real time meant once a month and I, was, <laughs> I had to like go home and, uh, have a beer and think about that one for a second. So, but, um, yeah. So, so one thing that I'm I'm wondering about, and I would love to ask everybody that is also in here joining us, throw your answer in the chat or your best guess. This is something that I've been noodling on for a while. Is we were talking about Snowflake and the idea of like a managed service with Snowflake 
is cool. People buy into that, right? But when we talk about like managed services with machine learning tools, I feel like that's not as common. And there's a really big like, ooh, I don't like that idea. And I just don't understand why. So anyone in this uh, in this meetup, please share your ideas on why you think. And Joe, I'd love to hear what you have to say about this too. And I know this is a total tangent from what we were going to talk about. It's a good tangent because it's something that I think about a lot. Um, And I was actually writing an article about this too. Um, uh, So managed services are an interesting one. I would say that only recently, when you're talking in software engineering and DevOps, not including ML, uh, managed services, I think, are becoming more and more accepted. You know, when I worked as a software engineer, it was still oh, well, we can just deploy that on our own. Like, why do we need to, you know, spend money on this managed service? And I've also heard people say, oh, well, we don't buy anything, right? Like, we just use the open source version. And that's perfectly fine. I think it's just a matter of, you know, what it, what do you want your total cost of ownership to be? Um, and also, you got to consider things like total opportunity cost of ownership. So what are you giving up? Uh, by investing your time into uh, these open source solutions. Now, of course, the the world of software engineering is, you know, and managed services around software engineering is much more mature than the managed services around machine learning, let alone ML ops, which I think is a totally separate thing, actually. Mm. Um, you know, the managed services around machine learning, I say, are, are getting better, but it's still, I would say, a coin flip. If you talk to a data team on AWS, I would say half of them are probably deploying models in Flask and uh, kind of rolling their own. And, and maybe the other are using SageMaker or something or a managed service or something. But it's still, there seems to be a lot of reluctance. It reminds me a lot of actually when um, software engineers would deploy their databases on VMs uh, back in the day and, and instead of just using like RDS or um, Cloud SQL or, or something like that. Um, but yeah. So that, that's one aspect to it, I think. And, and But again, there's also this, just the tooling around machine learning um, for managed services, I think it's improving, but it's still highly immature, I think. Um, and not from a, uh, uh, I would say it's not even from an engineering perspective that they're immature. It's I think more just from um, best practices in data science in general right now. Like half the tutorials you read out there, you know, and I imagine data scientists wanna, keep improving their skills if they're like, oh, how do you, you, I'll show you how to deploy your um, SK learn model in Docker and Flask. And I'm just like, that's, that'll work for that particular instance. But just like deploying your your database on like a VM will work until your VM like crashes one day and you don't have your thing. So, mm-hmm. but you gotta start somewhere. Such a good point. Yeah. And I, you know, cause I was like thinking about it and thinking, well, it's it has something to do with data right it's because data is sensitive or it's because i don't want to move my data around or i don't want to do that but then that idea totally blew up when my friend was like yeah but snowflake Mm -hmm. like their data (laughs) and so why would you do that and your argument is a great it's it's perfect to think about it yeah maybe it's just the the maturity isn't there yet it hasn't been around long enough and Right now, we're just starting to see it become very, very clear within software engineering and look how long that's been around, right? So now when it comes to machine learning engineering and ML ops, it is maybe a few years out or maybe I think longer. That's being uh, optimistic, yeah. I mean, hopefully it's a few years out. I mean, I'm more thinking like 
ML engineering is like 10 years behind software engineering in a lot of regards. Of course, you also have, I would say, the experience curve that software engineering has sort of provided. Um, mm-hmm. So maybe ML engineering could keep up. So maybe your timeline is correct, actually, now that I think about it. But, you know, it, it, so there's, there's an interesting thing, too. I mean, a lot of the emphasis right now in the data science world is still on training models. And I think that was an interesting conversation yeah. maybe in 2016 or 2017. But um at least I know I personally moved on from that. Like, however you want to train your model, that's great. I don't really care. Because I, I think it, it, you should, it should be the same conversation you have around code. Like, if you want to write in Python or Go or Rust, like, I shouldn't really have an opinion on that. Um, just containerize it and deploy it, right? Like, the, the, the days yeah. of, I think, language wars are, are silly, and, and I think we're past those in the software engineering land. Um, you still see R versus Python as some religious holy war in data science. Yeah. It's like a stupid <laughs> argument, frankly. Um, so, Yeah, actually, it's funny you say that because I was throwing around ideas for MLOps community swag. And one of the shirts I wanted to make was like with the, uh, on, you know, saying something like, nobody cares about your F1 score, just get it out. <laughs> like something like that, you know, where it's so true. Yeah, all right, we're cool. We just, now you've got this train you've trained the model let's just make sure that it can get out there and it can work mm-hmm. and so i've i'm just seeing something from jonathan in the chat and he's saying that in his opinion managed services require a certain level of maturity typical common it services that are managed and virtually commoditized have been around for decades but it's not the same for some of the spaces that we're talking about so basically echoing what we were we were just saying Thanks for chiming in, Jonathan. I appreciate that. There's another question here in the chat, and I think this is a good one to get us back on track because we seem to have drifted a little. And everyone, hopefully, if you were coming for the BI to AI conversation, we're getting back to it. Here we go. (laughs) It's uh, Where would you draw the line between BI and AI? Does a simple K-means algorithm count as BI or AI? Are all machine learning algorithms considered equal, especially that artificial intelligence is much more than only machine learning? We have also good old fashioned AI, for example, knowledge representation and reasoning. There's a lot to unpack yeah. there. This, this is a really good, very nuanced question. I like it. Um, so definitely it, it's interesting. So I'll, I'll give you an example of, of the uh, K-means example. So I remember interviewing this person. Um, they just come out straight out of college. And I asked them, uh, okay, so give me an example of, of um, you know, an ML problem you solved and, you know, kind of, and, and so as they're going through it, they're kind of like, well, so I, I created a database and then I um, used K-means to, to group, um, you know, the categories in a, in a table. And, and I was like, well, that's, that's interesting. Um, it, like, it sounds a lot like a group by statement in SQL. So did you did you try that too? Um, and so when you started digging more into the answer, it's like, well, that literally is a group by statement that you, that you did. Um, like, so you know, I, I would say that that that's an example of, of trying to apply um, machine learning techniques um, where maybe a simpler technique that you would use in BI would would have just sufficed just fine. And so. Um, that and the distinction between business intelligence and artificial intelligence, I would say, is is it comes down to like, BI is I need to get historical looking 
answers for uh, my business uh, based upon things like um, KPIs, key performance indicators, or various metrics that help me drive my business. I need to know, am I doing better or worse today than yesterday or last year? Um, and so AI, we'll call it machine learning for this case, because it, it, I think further in your, in your question or your, or your statement, it's, it, there's a bit of nuance, right? So AI also encompasses machine learning as well as you know, knowledge representation, um, symbolic reasoning and so forth. Um, ML is for things where you need to teach a program um, uh, and it needs to uh, basically learn from its own experiences and be able to translate that to new experiences, right? So I think I'm sort of paraphrasing the, the classical definition that Thomas Mitchell gave in his machine learning book that came out in like the mid nineties, I think. Hmm. Um, I still think that's probably one of the better definitions of machine learning. Um, at the end of the day, machine learning is about, it's glorified pattern recognition. That's all it is. Uh, it's basically you're applying statistics in an automated fashion uh, to um, recognize patterns in data. Um, and data could be tabular data, it could be images, audio, whatever. Um, at the end of the day, it's data. You're finding patterns and you're training a model so, so that that model can recognize um, hopefully similar patterns in new unseen data. And I say the new unseen part is where machine learning distinguishes itself from things like statistics or BI, for example, which are um, you may generate uh, like a statistical model on, on a set of data, but that's all you're doing. You're not applying it to new um, unseen data. Um, so that's the BI and AI are, are completely different. Um, and, and, and it's interesting, I, I would say like the, the term AI itself has I think been a bit bastardized over the years. I mean, when I got into ML back in the day, actually, we refused to use the term AI to describe what we were doing because we, we, we thought it was, because um, there had been a couple AI winters. Yeah. And so we didn't want to lump ourselves in with like that the, the uh, train of like all the uh, neural networks that it somehow like, you know, sort of lost favor because that was what AI was back then. And then a couple of years later, deep learning comes onto the scene and now it's called AI. And we're like, well, shit, I guess that, that happened and not use the neural nets that actually caused the first two AI winters. So um, nomenclature aside, it, it's interesting seeing what's now called AI versus what was machine learning or just like um, statistics back then. Um, so like time series forecasting is actually a really interesting one that used to just be statistical techniques that you'd apply to, to time series data. Now it's called machine learning. I don't know mm -hmm. why, but. Yeah, and following up on that question, which is an awesome question, by the way, the idea of what have you seen out there that probably like, what other things is machine learning an overkill for? And well, let's just start there because I'll follow it up with Actually, a million questions. <laughs> I would say it's so, it, if we flip the question around, what is uh, what is machine learning going to be good at, right? So it's, I think it's really good at, at, at situations where you need um, cheap predictions quickly and in volume, right? So that's uh, so if that's maybe classifying a lot of images, for example, like that's a perfect use case for um, ML AI, whatever you want to call it, um, NLP, another great use case. I would say where it actually is um, you actually run into the most trouble on tabular data uh, with machine learning. And I'll explain why. When you, a lot of people would try and use uh, their data warehouse, for example, as their data store for um, making machine learning models. Um, in my experience, this becomes a fascinating exercise in, did you already answer your question in your data set? 
because and, you know if, if you're doing like time series forecasting, I would say that's an appropriate use case for data um, in your data warehouse. But again, that's not really machine learning. But if we're talking about predictive analytics as a category, um, forecasting maybe predicting customer churn is another one where you can use the data sets. But when you start getting into it, sort of like I need to predict which customers are going to um, issue a refund, for example. It's kind of like, I mean, this is a question that, that maybe come up. Um, but when you, when you step back and look at the, the way the question's um, framed, uh, you may just be able to answer that with a query, hmm. right? Um, or just behavior. Like if a customer, we had one where they were trying to figure out, okay, what's the propensity of the customer who's going to uh, issue a return to us on our website? And then we looked at the data and it's like, well, most people go to your website for, and if they're going to re make a return, they go to the return page. So I don't know. I think you could probably answer your question actually <laughs> through that, right? I don't think you need AI to tell you that if somebody's on the return page, they're likely to return. <laughs> so uh, so it's it just it's sort of, I would say the crux of it is just answering, um, asking better uh, ML questions to begin with uh, as, as it pertains to tabular data. Um, so that's, Almost the opposite, because if you look at the way tabular data and data warehouse data is structured, it's um, it's actually the exact opposite of where I said it was good. So again, it, it's not cheap. It doesn't ha happen quickly, nor does it really happen. Maybe it happens in volume, but it's not really the sort of pattern recognition um, of like a image classification use case, for example. It's almost the exact opposite, actually. Mm -hmm. So super interesting to think about. Now, when you are looking at these different data sets and you're looking at what would be good for ML and what is probably just a BI case. Are you thinking about what data to collect and how different do those vary? Um, I mean, always start with the end in mind, right? So the, uh, uh, I always suggest just starting with the business question that you're trying to answer. Um, and yeah, then it just comes down to knowing which data sources. And this, this, is, this comes back to the data governance piece we were talking about earlier. Like you need to know what data sources to access, what fields to access. Um, is the data clean? Like, can I expect consistent results of the data? And so if you can check all those boxes um, and can join the data together, I guess the next question is if you're joining the data together, um, you're typically gonna probably do it in SQL, right? Because very few people have like a flat um, denormalized table, that's just awesome to answer ML questions. Like that never happens um, out of the box. Like you kind of have to build that. But then as you're joining the data together, I would say definitely ask yourself, could I just answer this question right now? Hmm. And I would say, you know, my experience, especially, you know, in one of the uh, auto ML startups I was at, where we're doing stuff on BI data, I would say eight or nine times out of 10, the, the question was, could actually be answered with a SQL query. You didn't need to apply uh, anything further to that because um, it really wasn't the type of question where you needed to build a model um, you just it was more of a categorization question super so. interesting so mm -hmm. now there's one thing that you said in one of your videos that I found fascinating and it was the idea of like software engineering and data engineering are basically going to merge into one there is not going to be a software engineering without that data component can we talk about that a little bit yeah, uh, I, th I think it's just the notion that um, data is becoming uh, sort of a non-negotiable entity um, in technology, right? So the motivation behind, so I'll contrast this with, with at least my experiences 
you know, as with the software engineer and the data engineer. And so, you know, if you're in the in the early 2010s, kind of late 2000s, you're probably making a, a modern web application on something like a Ruby on Rails or a Django or something like that, right? So you're using like a CRUD, create, read, update, delete um, kind of paradigm. And so what this means is, um, you have you have an application and your data is going into this database, maybe MySQL or Postgres, a relational database. And because of the nature of the application, the data is mutating all the time as you're doing updates and deletes, right? And so it's it's insanely difficult to do um, analytics, uh, let alone anything else on that data set because it's constantly changing. And so I'd say first what I noticed is, you know, as data became more um, prevalent in companies is Data, like data scientists and software engineers would start working together to alleviate some of these like pretty basic issues, um, mutating data being one of them. And then as applications become, I would say, more data-centric, i.e. Um, you're embedding machine learning into applications, uh, you know, it, it's, to me, the line between like software engineering and data engineering is just becoming uh, more and more um, blurry because it's like where does the, where does the um, if you have this feedback loop between application and your data system, like where's the beginning and where's the end of everything? It's basically one circle. So, hmm. yeah, it's such a great insight. And I thought about that and was thinking, yeah, I get. I mean, to me, it makes sense. I buy into it. Now, let's go back to the <laughs> the theme at hand. I know I keep going off on these random tangents, and let's talk a little bit more about the idea of the the algorithm building and how that's such a small piece of uh, machine learning and how the the main thing around it is infrastructure these days and MLOps, right? And figuring out how am I going to serve this? And then when you're a company that's doing BI and you need to shift to doing machine learning or you want to because you realize, hey, this is our BI is not good enough right now. I mean, we're discarding those companies that you talked about before that it's like, yeah, we're not really data-driven, but we like to say that we are. And then also the companies that don't really have a use case for it that you were saying earlier too, let's discard them. Let's talk about companies that really do have a use for it and they want to go from BI to ML. What do you usually recommend there? Um, Yeah, I mean, start with... and And it's an awesome place to be, right? I would say if you can start embedding ML into um, workflows or your application, for example. So workflows might be internal facing stuff, right? So talking about automating mundane tasks, um, that's an easy place to start. Look for places where you can get, um, where you can make predictions very cheaply and get feedback on those predictions very quickly. So maybe to reverse the question or, you know, reverse my answer, I'd say an, an example of probably where you wouldn't want to start is if you're like, doing credit scoring and your turnaround time on understanding that somebody's going to default is a five-year time horizon, right? That's not going to yield significant value for your business. It might over the five-year horizon or whatever, but it's not enough information. You have to wait a long time to, to get feedback on how well your model's going to do. You might want to start with something where, um, you know, uh, you can automate like a, a workflow, um, user behavior in an application, for example, like a user clicks a button and it does this, does this response, we can, you know, personalize an application, like things where you can get 
feedback really, really quickly, I think are great places to start. And obviously things that are going to hopefully drive the needle for your business as well. Um, uh, but that's really, I think, a case by case basis because every business is different. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's a great point. Like find those small wins and then build your way up. Just make sure that you're actually getting some business value out of it as yeah. fast as you can. You understand where ML is useful, right? So again, it's useful. It, it's going to be most effective again when you have high volumes of like transaction or predictions you need to make cheaply or classifications or also predictions uh, cheaply and getting feedback quickly. If it fits a criteria, like go for it. So yeah, awesome. So the other thing that I was like thinking about, you know, the this idea of a strong data foundation. And for you, what does that mean? Like just collecting everything and always having backups of it and making sure that it's always available, you know, highly available. What is, what is a strong data foundation in your eyes? Um, I, I definitely think it comes back to, uh, from a technical um, aspect, I would say definitely data is available all the time uh, when people need it to answer the questions that uh, they need answered. Right, like that to me is a, the foundation of of anything else you're going to do with data. This is also obviously coupled with um, you know a strong organizational bend towards data, but I'm not going to go there because it's a whole other can of worms. Um, so I mean, the foundation right there, I would say, sets you up to do um, you know a lot of other interesting things with data. The, the lack of that foundation obviously means that you're just going to be kind of meandering around. So yeah, and the other thing, I know we're kind of getting low on time, and I see. There, there's a comment in the chat, um, which is going to be very hard for me to read. <laughs> I don't think I'm going to read it. I'm just going to direct everyone there. And if you're listening or watching in the future, you, uh, I'll put it in the description. But it is a great take on what we've been talking about. Uh, but along these lines of data foundations and tooling to use, because like we've been talking about, the tooling is evolving and tooling is becoming something that is no longer stuck like you know CD-ROMs were tooling for software developers in the 90s. It's now evolving quickly. And so in your eyes, like I, so I feel like what I've seen with a lot of people is, especially when it comes to data scientists, right? If they wanna start getting that quick action and making sure that something works or trying to put something into, um, just get it out there and put it into the wild, they'll usually start with some open source. And I don't know what your thoughts are on that, but there, there's a lot of data scientists that I've seen. Generally, it's like I call ML flow the gateway drug. It's it's how most data scientists will get into like trying to prove out some business value. But I'd love to hear your take on it. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, there's there, we're definitely in the golden age of machine learning tools right now. There's there's a ton of them, right? Both in open source and managed solutions. Um, I mean, the fascinating thing is too, a lot, you know, these tools are created from uh, you know, it's a very well-experienced, well-qualified people in these specific domains, right? And they have great teams supporting them. I mean, there's, I don't think there's a day that goes by there's not some new ML tool that comes out, but I mean, that seems really cool too. And then, yeah. you know, it's to the point now where I'm like, I, um, it, it's it's hard to, I don't know about you, I, I find it's, it's hard to keep up. There's, there's a lot of, there's a lot coming out. It reminds me of like the JavaScript frameworks that came out in like the uh, 
kind of early 2010s, like it's just like every day there was like a new awesome way to make a web app in JavaScript and ML tooling is no different. And, and I talked to people who run, you know, the companies around either open source ML tools or um, uh, you know, open source packages. And it's what, what I find fascinating is like all these people are insanely smart. Um, they know their domain really well. And they're surrounded by like 20 other companies or projects that are doing the same thing. And they're all well-funded. They all have brilliant yeah. people working on it. And so it, to me, it's, it's, it's a, it's, it's a great time. It's also a confusing time because you know, how do you know which one's going to yes. uh, be the, the winner at the end of the day when everything shakes out? Like, I don't think I'm smart mm-hmm. enough to know that answer. Honestly, it's, there's too much, uh, there's, there's too much going on. And I think it's a good thing, but I would say for, for people in looking at tools, um, you know, keep your options open. I would say avoid religious arguments about this tool is the best and I'm going to stake my entire career on this tool. Um, just because the paradigms are changing so quickly in, in the ML ops space right now um, that, you know, you don't have the consolidation you do in maybe the model training world where it's like there's PyTorch and there's TensorFlow and maybe SPLearn, right? Yeah. And MXNet off to the side, but it's like that field's consolidated. Um, and there's so many other aspects to it as well. You have the ML algorithm piece, but then you have all these other peripheral things around it, feature storing, CICD, um, data profiling, like yeah. it's insane. Right. And, and amongst those, like each one of these is its own constellation where there's like, you know, dozens of projects and companies working in each one of these spaces. And like, like I said, these are all super qualified super awesome people working on this, right? I mean, you don't just randomly get into a space if you're stupid. Like you have to have brains to like understand the, the problem space well enough to want to build a company or a project. It's, it's just, it's a good time, but I would say for people that will, are evaluating these frameworks, um, just go in with your eyes wide open and be prepared for um, things to change because they will. Yeah, and it's interesting you say that because it, it touches close to home for me. I mean, before... Basically, at the beginning of the start of the community, I was working at a company called Dot Science, and they were an MLOps tooling company, and they went out of business. And so, there, it's like you said, you know, if you're a company and you're bought into one of these companies and the consolidation happens or they go out of business because a pandemic happens, then what do you do? How easy is it for you to lift and shift or just completely? pivot to a new provider. And so that's one thing that I think is is super interesting. And you you made a few points on some videos that I was watching about this and how like how aware you need to be on that and how much resources it would take. So like don't get too invested, I think was how you were looking at it. I can't remember exactly. Maybe you can you can refresh my memory on that. Well yeah there's a couple uh threads on this. So one Keep your options open. I would say in some ways you can do that. Like if you're in the cloud, keep your data in an object store, for example. Like don't put your data into um, like a proprietary data store, for example, unless you have a really good reason. You always want to look for your exits. Um, so that would be the first thing. Um, the other thing is just stay on top of the communities involved. In the, I mean, a lot of these are going to be open source projects. I, I would say that you know, there, there's there there's there might be a backlash, I think, against the open source model uh, soon. I think um, mm-hmm. you, you think? that 
Yeah. I think so. Yeah. I, well, the open source model in the sense where you're going to build a business on top of open, uh, an open source project. Yeah. Um, there's there's some speculation. I think Hacker News even had some article the other day on the, you know, the open source business models dead. And, and so you see these things mm-hmm. popping up once in a while. Um, again, I, I know really smart people working in the open source projects who are building businesses around it. And, mm-hmm. um, it's, it's just hard for me to say. Like I said, I don't think I'm smart enough to figure out where this space goes specifically, like who the winners are going to be. Right. Mm-hmm. So, but then again, if, if a person like me who's interacting with a lot of these projects on a daily basis can't figure it out, like, you know, I, I think for people who aren't paying attention, it's going to be even that much harder. That's my whole yeah. point. It's like, I, I would like to think I'm pretty um, well invested and in, in well researched in um, the data space right now. It's just, it's moving too fast. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I notice it every day. There's a new, somebody that pops up in the community and says, Hey, we do this, we do X, Y, Z. And, and it's like, wow, there's another one. Actually, I was going to, like, I joke with friends that I'm going to write a blog post, like, please do not start an ML ops company. Like I'm begging you, not another one. We do not need it. We right now we need to, we need clarification on what is happening and where the, the pieces are. I think, um, Dan Jeffries was on here and funny enough, he comes from an MLOps company, but he, his vision was that you're going to start seeing companies start coming together on different parts of the stack, kind of like what you have, like the mean stack or the MERN stack. Yeah. You'll start seeing that with uh, the machine learning tools. Do I think that's, any- that's a good one. Like, we saw this with, um, actually somebody had a meme the other day with um, the analytics engineering stack. It was a DAG stack. So mm-hmm. I think it was like, um, gosh, no, no, miss it. But it was like uh, Airflow, Great Expectations, Snowflake, uh, DBT was the, the D. So uh, yeah, um, you know, so you might start seeing uh, that kind of stack. Um, but again, you got to understand too, like stacks come and go. You know, and, yeah. and just, you know, the mean stack was a thing. Now it's a jam stack, and who knows <laughs> what it's going to be in a couple of years. Uh, and so just, you know, the, the main thing is just, I think it would say for anybody in this space, just keep your options open from uh, what you invest your, um, you know, your company into. You don't want to be that person who got you spun up on Hadoop like in 20, uh, you know, 2009 and is still on it because you can't get off it. Um, you know, that, that if you like that, I guess that's fine. But, uh, you know, the world's kind of moved on from that. And so have optionality in your stack. I'd say, that, again, the golden age of, of ML tools also means you have kind of the golden age of, not locking yourself in right as long as you take care to make sure your data again like if you keep your data in one central place and you just keep bolting on tools on top of it like that's cool go for that approach mm-hmm. for sure um but that's interesting. Yeah, as far as where it goes like i have no idea and again paradigms are going to be changing i think the same thing you saw with uh ml algorithms and sort of the revolution you had in, in 2014 and um, 2017, you had GANs and all this other stuff coming out of, out of you know, the woodwork. I think that was a bit earlier, but regardless, um, you know, I think you're going to see, see the same thing with uh, MLAPS architectures. Like what we see today is probably not what we're going to see in two years. Yeah. Yeah. And one thing I will say is that it is wild how you can, I stumble across blog posts that are written in 2019 and you read them and you go, oh, this is a little bit outdated. Right. And it's just 2019. It wasn't like it was so long ago or even the beginning of this year. Maybe you can start to look at it and go, ah, yeah, this is good. There's good information here, but it's not really up to date. Mm -hmm. 
I would say, you know, there's there's um, learning the MLOps field is an interesting one right now because it's still new. There's not a lot of resources yet. Um, one of the best resources I've seen is actually my friend Josh Tobin has a class, uh, Full Stack Deep Learning, um, which mm. is actually just announced. It's going to be a Berkeley uh, course in the spring, I believe. Um, but he's got a series of uh, videos that he did um, with him and some other colleagues. And that's probably one of the better resources I've seen if you want to understand um, just holistically the um, sort of machine learning ops space right now. Um, and other advice too, as I give to other engineers and data scientists is actually maybe don't, so, don't pay so much attention to the latest, greatest training thing, but trying to understand the underlying principles involved. If you can have a first levels or first principles understanding of things like um, DevOps, for example, right? And good software engineering, good coding practices. And I think data scientists should learn to code. Um, I would love to see that being more of a thing. Um, uh, basically understanding um, good software engineering principles I think will greatly help people as they you know, kind of endeavored along the uh, machine learning ops. I'm just taking notes on that one. I might have to quote you on that. Don't try and don't pay so much attention to the latest, greatest, shiny things, but try to understand the underlying principles on them. Well, I think with that, we can close. I really appreciate you coming and talking to me, Joe. This has been awesome. If you are still with us, again, I cannot stress it enough. Check out Joe's channel. It's in the chat. If you did not see it, we'll repost it and come say hi to us in the MLOps community Slack. We're trying to get to 2,000 people before the end of the year. Hopefully we can do it. And if you're already in it, send me a video of what you like about the community because I'm making an end of the year community video. So that is all we have for today. Thanks again, Joe. Hey, thank you. All right, talk to you guys later. See ya.